The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Psalms, The Anatomy of the Soul. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalms 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, and the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before the God in the light of life. But this is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning once again. Welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Sam. I'm on staff here. I'm one of the elder candidates. Um, I wanted to specifically welcome visitors. If this is your first time or you're relatively new to this church, um, welcome you and and let you know we're kind of in a unique season as a church. Um, Pastor Justin, we've been able to send he and his family away for uh, a short sabbatical. Um, And I tell you that um, because that directly affects who stands behind the pulpit this time each week. Um, So that's kind of unique. We've seen a lot of faces over the last three or four weeks, and we'll continue to see a few new faces. Um, But another thing that makes uh, us in kind of a unique season is that we're kind of coming to a close with a string of topical sermon series. We started back, I think, in April um, with a few different series, and now we're in a sermon series called The Anatomy of the Soul. Um, but, But this is unique because we typically preach verse by verse through books of the entire Bible. Um, and in this season, we've been kind of taking specific topics, um, things that are, are relevant and, and timely, and addressing them from a biblical perspective. So we've been preaching verse by verse through parts of the Bible. Um, but we're excited here at the end of Anatomy of the Soul, we'll be jumping back in to what we do, expositional preaching through books of the entire Bible with uh, the book of Exodus. So that's something to look forward to with that. But in our current series, Anatomy of the Soul, <clears throat> excuse me, what we've what we've done is we've taken eight psalms that we think really pinpoint um, eight of the foundational feelings that we experience as humans. And as we take a look at these psalms, our aim is to gain a biblical understanding uh, of the role of feelings and emotions in our discipleship. And many of us have never thought that way, um, that emotions are a God-given thing that lead us deeper into relationship with, with God and with others. Um, But they are. That's why God has given us, so that we can continue to grow near to him and with others. And I actually, I didn't think that way until about a year ago. Um, For me, emotions were sort of messy. Um, They were frustrating, complicated, kind of was a a barrier to to living an abundant or an enjoyable life. Um, But over the course of the last year, I've learned, and primarily through the Psalms, that the way to live the full abundant life is to be honest about your heart, to be honest about 
what you feel and the emotions before God and to allow him to meet you where you're at. And there's perhaps no better place to see God do this than in the Psalms. And today, we're going to take a look at um, Psalm 56 and what it has to say about fear. And this feeling of fear is actually a very intricate and, and sometimes confusing topic. Um, most of us have had experiences with fear that has kind of left us scratching our head, wondering what's going on. Maybe as a child, uh, we came to a parent or to a loved one in fear and say, hey, I'm afraid, and we're told to kind of suck it up, um, or, or t- we're told that there's actually nothing to be afraid of. If you go to your older brother, he probably tells you to stop being a sissy. Um, other times, we, we might have, have experienced or, or experienced it or have seen how fear can be used as a manipulator. Um, people use it to manipulate other people, or we've we personally wrestle with fear. Like we, we are fearful people and we kind of have this constant tug of, of fear going in our life and we don't really know what to do about it. Even when we look at scripture, we can be confused because on, on one hand, one of the most common um, commands is for us to fear not or don't be afraid. But just as we saw in our call to worship to this morning, uh, we're told that it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom and the Lord is pleased with those who fear him. So even with that, we kind of are left scratching our heads. Well, what is it? Are we, are we to be afraid? Are we to not be afraid? Where, where do we stand with fear? And so today, what I hope to do uh, is offer you a better understanding of God-given fear and what that, that feeling is meant to do. Um, and, I, and I'm not so much going to cover the mechanics of it because you don't really need to know how, a car, how an engine works in order to drive it. But I want to show you where fear is meant to take us, where it's supposed to lead us. And it's supposed to lead us, one, to, to cry out for help, to turn to God and help. And two, it's supposed to make us aware of God's presence. So that's kind of where we're going today. Just a heads up, and I'm going to pray, and we will jump right in. Father God, we thank you for this morning to gather and to worship, to be reminded of your faithfulness and your love and your presence here with us um, through the liturgy, through the reading of scripture, and through song. I ask that you would um, be, in, be with us in this time right now. Allow us to hear. Hearing and listening is a spiritual endeavor, and we need your help. Um, would you unblock our ears? Would you soften our hearts to receive what you have for us? Would you help us to turn to Christ in faith and, and embrace him? And would you also help us to, to see fear clearly from your perspective, what, what fear is meant to do? Um, And I need your help this morning, Father. I cannot do this on my own. I'm a weak, feeble man. So would you anoint my mind, anoint my tongue um, to speak of your greatness, of your steadfast love. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so let's jump right into Psalm 56. Take a look at it. But actually, before we get to the text part, I want to read the... um, the introduction here. So if you have your Bible open, you'll see, um, or on your app, you'll see there's a little bit of pretext before verse one. It says, to the choir master, according to the dove on the far off terebinths, a mictim mm-hmm, of David, when the Philistines seized him at Gath. I honestly have very little idea what any of that means. Okay, and to be honest, scholars are, are, are not quite sure either. Most of them think it's some sort of liturgical information, musical information, but I want to draw your attention to here is the context in which this psalm comes to us. It's that last line, when the Philistines seized David in Gath. 
Okay, so what this psalm tells us, it's actually linked to a historical event that actually happened in David's life. This isn't some sort of a theoretical occasion of fear. This is a real life situation, and we actually get to to glimpse into this situation. Details of the situation are in 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. So if you want to turn with me, it's about halfway to the front of the Bible from where you're at in Psalm. And I've got words on the screen that are going to accompany us, I hope. 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. I'll get there too. Here we go. And David rose, and he fled that day from Saul. Okay, I got to stop because there's some some background to the story here. So say Saul and David, they have a very interesting relationship. Saul was the first king of Israel. Okay, he was the one that God appointed to lead his people, and Saul started out doing things pretty good. He, he was a good king for a while, but eventually the power got to his head, and he started disregarding God and doing things his own way, and so in, in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, God rejects Saul as the king, and by chapter 16... David is anointed as the new king of Israel. And so you can see how there might be some, some tension here. Um, but this, this transition isn't an immediate transition. It happens over a span of time. And in this span of time, um, Saul recruits David to be his personal musician. He, he's kind of his uh, uh, king courtyard musician, which makes sense when we know that David is responsible for writing a vast majority of the Psalms, that he's, a, he's an artist, he's a singer, he's a songwriter. Um, but David just isn't a, an artist in the stereotypical sense. Um, David is, is also a, a courageous warrior, and we're, we're kind of given a glimpse into that part of his life when David defeats Saul with a sling and a stone, um, while the rest of Israel's army is kind of uh, camped up in their tents in fear, shaking at the sight of Goliath. David goes out there with basically nothing and slays the giant. And from that victory, um, on the way home, Saul, we're told, becomes very jealous of David because there's a song, and then we'll actually see it, that song um, in, in our text um, of Psalm 56, where people are giving David a lot of credit instead of giving Saul credit, right? When, when a, a, a king or his army wins battles, the credit all goes to the king, no matter what he did. But in this situation, David is given a lot of credit, and so there's a lot of jealousy stirred up within Saul. And so Saul makes it his personal mission to destroy David. We see a lot of times um, up to this point between uh, chapter 16 through 21 where David is fleeing for his life because Saul wants him dead. And this is exactly why uh, David is running. So back to the text. And David rose and he fled that day from Saul and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And something important to know about Gath, it's the hometown of Goliath. Okay, the hometown of Goliath. So David runs to this place where people are not really fond of him. Um, And what he's hoping to do is kind of fly under the radar, become a kind of mystery man, blend in with everybody. But in this process, um, he is recognized. And that's in verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Here's that song that I was telling you about. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Okay, so David is discovered. He realizes his cover is blown and this is what happens. Verse 12, and David took those words to heart and he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. 
Okay, so David realizes he's been discovered. He's terrified. So what does he do? Keep looking, verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? See, David does what every reasonable person would do, right? He acts like a madman. He's, he's crazy. He's shouting obscenities. He's marking up the walls. He's got drool coming from his face. And it's kind of comical, right? After all, he's got spittle running down his beard. And the surprising thing about this whole deal is it works, right? David is released. He gets off the hook. So for any of you who might find yourself in the midst of a, a hostage situation, Take note, apparently nobody wants to keep a madman. Um, and we can all kind of chuckle about this and look at this sort of like it's a, it's a funny joke, but what, what we need to do is kind of remember that David is scared. He's running for his life here, and a ter- terrible fear has set in. And we know that because 1 Samuel 21 actually tells us that a great fear set in, that he was much afraid. But also, David wrote two psalms about the situation, expressing the fear that he faced as he was hiding out in the cave. And in these psalms, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56, David expresses this fear. He expresses the threats that he faced as he ran from Saul and the Philistines. Now, this is how fear works. When we feel threatened, our hearts respond with fear. Because fear makes us aware of danger. It helps us realize that something out there could potentially harm us. And in this way, fear is a good thing because it makes us aware of the dangers that surround us and it allows us to proceed with wisdom. But most of us don't really see fear as a good thing. The general thought is fear equals weakness or fear breeds distrust and doubt. And because we see that fear this way, we tend to avoid it. And I get it, man. I don't, I don't like feeling afraid at all, so much so that I despise scary movies. There have been times when people come over to my own house. I get invited, or I, I get, I get uh, vetoed for a movie selection. They pick a scary movie, and I'm stuck in a different room reading a book the rest of the night, okay? And I dislike it. And this is, if this is my response to a synthetic fear, because these scary movies, they create a synthetic fear where we're not actually being threatened, but empathy allows us to relate with the characters in the movie. If this is how I respond to synthetic fear, just imagine my posture towards real fear. And I think most of us are like this, that if, if we have the opportunity to fear or to not fear, we would choose, obviously, to not be afraid. but there are times when fear is good, when fear is necessary, very helpful. A life without fear would end poorly for us. Fear tells me to stay away from poisonous stakes, to stay away from ledges of tall buildings, and to stay away from people who are really strong, who are angry, right? It exposes physical threats. But fear does more than that. It also exposes relational and emotional threats as well. Because we're living in a sinful world with other sinful people, there's a lot of potential to be harmed in relationship and emotionally. 
For example, if we're around someone who's sarcastic and belittling, we're going to do our best to kind of stay back and protect ourselves from that person so we don't get humiliated. Or if we're around someone we suspect will reject us in meanness, we kind of put up a front or we try to appease them with a false self so we won't be ridiculed or rejected. And in David's situation, we can see the physical threat. People want him dead, but there's also very much a relational threat going on here that Saul and David were once friends and now Saul has rejected David. David went to Gath hoping to find a new friend who could potentially help him, but all he found was an enemy who wanted him dead as well. Just as much as we're afraid of physical threats, of uh, people breaking into our home, fear of heights, spiders, snakes, what could be lurking around in the dark, there's just as much, if not more, to fear in emotional and relational situations. And if we're honest with our hearts, we're actually quite fearful people. Many of us have a fear of rejection, that if I open up and somebody doesn't like me, that terrifies me. Or a fear of abandonment, where if I open up myself, they they might accept me to a certain degree, but when they find out who the real me is, they're going to leave me out to dry. Or a fear of humiliation. If I open up and I share something that's sensitive Somebody can use that to harm me, to expose me in an unfavorable light. A lot of us have a fear of making the wrong choices, and because of this, we, we just can't decide. We second-guess all of our, ourselves all of the time. Or a fear of losing what you love. And so in that fear, you expend a lot of energy trying to protect those things. And one of the most prominent fears in my life is a fear of failure. This fear of failure just drives me to think of what the other person thinks of me if I were to fail, and it drives me to succeed at all costs, even at the cost of relationships, and and I know that it's foolish to do that because relationships are what this life is all about. So if I win, if I succeed, what's the point if I do it at the expense of relationships? But it's not just those fears that exist. There's much more not just physical, not just emotional, not just a relational, but there's also fear of uncertainty, of the unknown. Dr. Dan Allender says, fear is also caused by the everyday uncertainty that gnaws at us. And this takes the form of worry, nervousness, and angst. Sometimes it's without cause. We don't know why we're always feeling this way. We just kind of are stuck in this perpetual cycle of fear and worry and angst. And other times we know what the cause is. It's a hard to please boss, a neglectful spouse, troubled child, messy house, maybe even health concerns. About a year ago, a year and a half ago, I was experiencing some, some stomach issues and I'll spare you all the details. You can thank me later. Um, but I finally went to the doctor to, to do something about it. I was in a lot of discomfort. So um, we did some tests, and eventually I had an endoscopy and a colonoscopy. And with those tests, um, nothing showed up. There was, I was clear of everything, which was good, right? Good thing to know that. But at the same time, there was no answer as to why I was feeling so sick. And while those tests came back, some blood work indicated that my kidneys weren't functioning properly. At that time, my function, kidney function was about 40%, and over the course of the next year, it would drop another 12%. 
And the doctors had no clue about what was going on. They had no clue what was causing it. They had no clue how to solve the issue, if it was solvable. And so I eventually had to have a biopsy done to kind of get a further look. And a couple days later, on a Friday, I remember it, I got a phone call from the nurse that the doctor had gotten my results back. And she told me that he had cleared a spot for me on his calendar the following Monday. And that he also wanted me to bring my wife along with me. Now, I had no details about the test results, but all I know that if a busy doctor clears a spot in his schedule for you and he tells you to bring your spouse along, it's probably not a good deal. And in that moment, in the dark, I felt fear creep in. To this point, I had been pretty relaxed about the whole situation. I'm, I'm young, I'm fairly healthy, I don't have any other symptoms. So I didn't see how serious the situation was until that phone call. So I started to wonder, maybe, I'm, maybe I have cancer, maybe I've got some sort of disease, maybe I'm dying. And in this unknown, I was thinking about the implications. What would happen in a worst case scenario if I were to die and my young family gets left behind? And to make the fear worse, to intensify the fear, I had earlier been uh, denied for life insurance. So the financial implications, the fears of that, just were crippling. The worst case scenario terrified me. And I think it's in, those, in the situations of the unknown where our mind wants to go to the worst case scenarios and fear is intensified. That money, Monday finally came, I went in to see the doctor and there was good news. From Friday to Monday, my diagnosis had changed. The first analysis, they thought that it was a serious issue, that I would have had to start a chemo treatment, and it probably would have left me sterile. But in having a second analysis, we found out that it was not quite as severe. They still weren't sure what was going on, but it was not as severe. And that was a relief to know that the worst case scenario had been pitched, no cancer, that we know of, wasn't dying yet. But even with the biopsy results, the doctors were still unclear about what was going on, why I'm having kidney problems and what to do to address it. So they did more tests, another a CT scan, and still with that, no real indicators. Did a, a couple of steroid treatments in an attempt to reduce the inflammation in my kidneys and try to bounce, let my kidneys bounce back. But that did not give us the results that we were hoping for. So in this, there's still a lot of unknown. And as things currently stand, I have stage three chronic kidney disease. My kidneys are functioning about 28%, and there's a chance, best case scenario, I could live a long, healthy life, never having to worry about what's going on in my kidneys. But if things continue to get worse, if my kidneys continue to fail and I hit the 20% mark, I could be put on a kidney transplant list. And at this point, it's really unclear about what's gonna happen. And this scares me. The uncertainty of this situation is crippling. And as, I, as fear makes me think about my health and the pain that I might experience in the upcoming years, even more so, it, it, it reveals my mortality. And it, and it makes me fearful of the implications that this might have on my family. So I know firsthand that there's a lot of fear in the unknown. 
And when we're honest about our fear, we can see how vulnerable and limited we really are. We can see that life's big dangers are very present and threatening to us. And we also see that we're very limited in what we can do about it. And coming to that conclusion itself can be a scary thing. Right? But the purpose of fear is not to paralyze us and leave us stuck. It is meant to move us towards seeking help. And this is what fear produced in me this time. From Friday to Monday, my wife and I were in prayer, constantly taking our requests before the Lord, asking for help. We were asking our MC family to pray for us, our family, our friends. This fear led me to cry out for help. And this is exactly what David does when he hears fear coming from the voice of his heart. So if we look at Psalm 56, we'll actually jump in to the text now. And we're actually going to do a little bit of jumping around um, because verse 5 through 11 are an expansion, really, of verses 1 through 4. So take a look at verses 1 and 2. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long for many attack me proudly. David is crying out for help as people are trying to harm him. He keeps explaining what is happening in verses five and six. All day long they injure my cause and their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. Fear has brought David to the end of himself. He's vulnerable. He's limited, and he realizes that he is surrounded by trouble. The threats are pressing in on him day and night. He says twice, all day long they come at me. And so he calls out to God, be gracious to me, O God. That is the the cry of the heart for help. And as he does so, he continues this petition for God to act on his behalf on verse 7. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. He's calling for God's righteousness to be put into action. Take care of my problems, address my threats, end what is causing my fear. And what's important for us to see is that fear is driving David toward God. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. He goes to the only one who can actually address his fears. Let me ask you, do you do that? When fear sets in, when you feel the tug of fear, do you go to God? I know I just told a story where I went to God in the midst of my fear, but I am more than inconsistent in this matter. I think most of us are. We might think we go to God, but really what is happening is we double down on ourselves. We try harder, we push ourselves, try to take more control of the situation. But in doing so, we stunt the good work of fear, and what we experience is impaired living, and it keeps us from the abundant life. So how do you know? How do you know if you're experiencing impaired fear? 
How do you know if you're, 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 you're not experiencing the abundant life? One of the big indicators is this, this question, are you anxious? And not just a little anxious, but like, do you constantly live in anxiety for extended periods of time? Do you feel like you're in a sea of worry without a flotation device? Chip Dodd says, anxiety takes us away from what is true and makes us fretful, distrustful, impulsive, and controlling. You're anxious because you're fearful that things won't turn out well, so the solution is, if I take control, then things will be okay. But using control to fix our anxiety will only increase our anxiety because we can never accumulate enough control to make our fears go away. Fear is meant to expose vulnerability, while anxiety tells us to suppress that. And it puts us on this never-ending pursuit of control. And it makes, uh, in, that, in that pursuit of control, it's impossible for us to cry out to God for help. Another impaired expression of fear is rage. Now, there's a difference between anger and rage, and we'll actually talk more about anger here in a couple weeks. But the foundational level, the foundational difference, anger actually acknowledges our vulnerability, where rage denies it completely. It has this uh, fury against vulnerability. It it doesn't allow us to feel vulnerability. In fact, it, it tries to get us to deny that fear actually exists at all. And the idea behind this is if I'm the attacker, if I'm the one who's posing the threat all the time, then nothing can hurt me. Anxiety and rage are ways of taking control to suppress fear. But there's another version of impaired fear that, and that's to be paralyzed. This is when our fear leaves us stuck. Like we have no place to go. We've given up hope for deliverance. In one sense, we rightfully acknowledge that we can't control the situation, but in another sense, we wrongfully think that no one else can help us. And so we think we're stuck, or that's the things are the way things are. And because of that, we live in a fear-induced state of helplessness. Anxiety, rage, and fear-induced paralysis are all unhealthy responses to fear. In fact, I would say that they're sinful because they never allow us to get to the place where fear is meant to take us. And thus, we miss out on the abundant life. So David, thankfully, he shows us an alternative way of living, an honest way, which acknowledges the threats that are ahead of him, and he turns toward God in fear. Look at verse three. When I am afraid... You see that David, mind you, the Goliath slayer, is afraid. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to take control. He doesn't sit in a pit of hopelessness. He acknowledges his fear. And he cries out to God. Keep reading. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And he continues this line of thought in verses 10 and 11. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now in the face of fear, 
David expresses his faith in God. And what we need to see here that fear and faith are not opposites. Fear actually gives us an opportunity to practice our faith. In fact, if we understand faith in a biblical sense, faith is actually a correct prioritization of our fears. When we're putting our faith in God, what we're actually saying is that we fear him the most. This takes us back to the passage that I mentioned earlier. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, when addressing this passage, some people say that fear of the Lord is an actual fear. It's more of a reverence or more of an awe. And this is definitely part of our posture towards God. But if we think exclusively in those terms, we miss out on the comfort of knowing that God is the creator who spoke and everything was. Of knowing that God is the sustainer of the universe. Of knowing that God is the judge that will determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. We miss out on the comfort of knowing that God is all powerful and that he's great. And if we don't have this cosmic view of God, then we won't understand him correctly. But if we do, it'll be right for us to fear him because God is all powerful and we are not. And Jesus actually affirms this in Luke 12. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is telling us that it is right to fear God because he is more powerful than anything else that we might fear. And this actually shows us that the way to overcome our fears is to fear something that is greater. And there's nothing greater, more powerful than God. Dan Allender says, fear of God strips away all other fears and compels us to deal with God, transcendent and infinitely higher than any mere mortal fear. Now, this doesn't mean that fear or the threats of fear magically vanish. When David professes his trust in God, Saul is still trying to kill him. But what David does and what we have the opportunity to do is to see the greater reality, that God is bigger than our fears. This reality will do one of two things. It'll either stir up a greater terror in us because we think God is a bully who's coming after me, that God is trying to trample me out to crush me. Or if we understand who God is and what he's done, it will lead us towards a great comfort because we'll know that through God's word that God is for us. This is why David is so confident. He says it in verse nine, take a look. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Because of God's grace, his undeserved love, David is certain that God is for him. He's so confident in who God is and that God is for him that he says in verses 4 and 11, what can my enemies do to me? He's saying if God is for me and he has ultimate power, then my enemies can't hurt me any more than God can heal me. They might still attack us and pursue us. The threats might still prevail, but God is on my side. 
This is how the fear of the Lord leads us to overcoming our fears. Wisdom allows us to see God for who he is and that he is for us. Paul even echoes this in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Friends, if, if you're hesitant to cry out to God for help, please know that he is for you. He wants to help you. His grace and love and protection are available for you. Now, the God of the universe isn't just for us in a sense where he's distant, cheering from the sidelines. He is near to us in the midst of our fear. See, this is what verse eight is all about. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This is intimate language here. To keep track of David's tossings means that God is bedside in the wee hours of the night. To keep his tears in the bottle means that God has been attentive and near to him, not once turning his head to miss a tear and letting it hit the ground. God does the same for you and me. He's with us, watching over us in such an intimate way that not a single hair can fall from our head without him knowing. So we see from Psalm 56 here that God is for us and he is with us. But some of us might be skeptical. There might be doubt right now. I don't blame you because it's hard to believe this. You might be thinking, well, maybe for David, God is with him, God is for him, but not for me. Or maybe you're on the fence thinking, well, how can I be certain that God is for me? How can I be certain that God is with me? You need to look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. John 1 tells us God put on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came to this world to be with us. One of the names for Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us is what it means. So God visibly makes his way toward us and enters into this dark, scary world in the person of Jesus. But let me remind you that this dark, scary world isn't the dark, scary world. That's not how God created the world to be. When he created it, it was beautiful. It was abundant world for us to flourish in, a place where there was no fear. But all that changed when Adam and Eve started fearing the wrong thing. Instead of fearing God, when he told them to stay away from that one tree, they feared what would happen if they didn't eat from that one tree. And they, with that disobedience, the world became a dark, scary place as death entered the world. And this has been the state of the world ever since that day, and it will continue to be like that until Jesus comes back again. But this is the world that Jesus entered into so that we might not fear wrongly anymore. Jesus came and he saw the threat of death, which is really, death is really the culmination of all of our fears. Death is the ultimate rejection. Death is the ultimate failure. Death is the ultimate humiliation. Death is the ultimate loss of everything. And Jesus saw that fear that death produced and he intervened for us. He lived the perfect life, always fearing God appropriately, never sinning. And to defeat death, Jesus was nailed to a cross 
And it was our sin that kept him there. Jesus stared death in the face. He felt the temptation that we often feel to take control, to distrust God. But Jesus was faithful to his heavenly father all the way to the point of death. And God was so satisfied with his obedience that he raised him from the dead, making him victorious victorious over death, where death could no longer hold him down. And in this great feat, our greatest fear has been conquered and our sins have been forgiven by God. Because of the resurrection, God proves that sin and death have been defeated. This is awesome. Death is no longer something to fear, but we see death as a doorway which leads to the permanent abundant life. A life of no more sin, no more death, no more fears, a life lived in the presence of God. Because of Jesus, we know that God is for us. God could have left us to our fears. He could have abandoned us because we had abandoned him, but he doesn't. Because of his perfect love, he sent Jesus, his son, to die for us. And with that perfect love, fear is cast out. So now for those who put their faith in Jesus, we can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But how do we know God is with us? Because, right, Jesus isn't here right now in the physical flesh and blood sense. He ascended back into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But we know that God is with us because Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to reside in the hearts of those who fear God. And with that spirit comes a promise that Jesus will be with us through the end of the age. And this isn't a spirit of fear. It's not a spirit of timidness. This is a spirit of confidence that leads us to cry, Abba, Father. In the same way that a child cries for their mom or dad in the middle of the night, we have that same spirit of confidence, knowing that God hears us and that God is for us. And as we experience God's perfect love that casts out fears, the only appropriate response is to worship. Because of the finished work of Christ, verses 12 and 13 have a truer, more profound meaning. Take a look. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Because Jesus has conquered our biggest fear, the fear of death, we can trust that he will take care of all of the smaller fears that come through our life. And because of that good news, we are free to worship Jesus as our savior and deliverer, the one who holds us up and keeps us from falling. And now as people who have been rescued from the darkness of fear, we are able to walk freely before God in the light of life. This is good news. A life of no more fear. As I close, I just want you to take a look at the book ends of the psalm, okay? In verse one, we see a request for help. 
Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. At the end of the psalm, we see that request answered. You have delivered my soul from death, my feet from falling. See, this is where fear is meant to take us. God-given fear is meant for us to acknowledge our weakness and our vulnerability and for us to cry out for God and help. In the midst of our troubles, we can see how Jesus draws near to us and offers us relief because he is for us and he has dealt with death once and for all. So in light of this gospel truth, I encourage you to be honest with your fear and bring your fears before God. Share your fears with your missional community family. Bring these to the light. Cry out for help in the midst of your marital problems, in the midst of parenting struggles, in the midst of kidney disease, in the midst of financial struggles. Turn to God and ask for help. And as you do, you'll find that God is eager to meet you there. But this is so hard for us to do. Even if you look at our psalm here, when David is repeating things to himself because it's such a hard thing to believe, it's such a hard thing to do, and so we need to also place ourselves within the context of a community of people who will remind us that God is bigger than our fears, to remind us that God has ultimately defeated death and there's no reason to be afraid. His perfect love is casting out fear. There's a need for us to remember that God is for us and that God is with us. As we take the Lord's Supper today, this is a means of grace that reminds us that Jesus is here with us right now. He is present among his church. And this is also a reminder that God is for us, so much so that he sent his own son to suffer and to die in his place, that it was his body that was broken. It was his blood that was shed. He faced death and the fear of it so we wouldn't have to. So this morning, I encourage you to come to the table in confidence. Come to the table with the deep joy of what Christ has done for you to relieve you of your fears and ultimately to show you how great and how powerful God is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus and being the fulfillment and ultimately the one that Psalm 56 is pointing to. He is the one who we trust. He is the one that we look to in the midst of our fears and in that we know he is near to us and he is for us. Help us, give us the faith to believe this. I pray, Father, that you would lead us to repentance in the ways that we have suppressed fear in the way that we've pushed it out, the way that we've avoided it and you would allow us to experience fear which would lead us to a greater, more real fear of you and knowing that you are for us and you are with us. I pray for the people who are struggling with fear, this lifelong struggle. Lord God, would you bring relief for those of us who, who, fear, who fear intermittently? Would you allow us to be quick to turn to you for help? In doing so, would you make us a humble people who are confident in our great Savior? And it's in his name we pray, amen.